Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever and whenever you are in the world, you're listening to the 15th edition of the Scottish Field podcast, released on Wednesday the 30th of June 2021. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Kenny Smith. I'm the web editor of Scottish Field. Over the next half hour or so, we're going to bring you more chat and an exclusive interview with a Scots writer. Every month, Scottish Field bring you the best of all things Scottish, heritage and interiors, antiques, gardens, wildlife, motoring, whisky and country news, as well as interviews with famous Scots names. Our July edition is still available in shops priced £4.75 and you can order it online. And we also have a special offer to subscribe to the magazine, both in physical and digital form. Our first guest today is Guy Grieve who is a Scottish Field columnist, as well as being the co-founder of the Ethical Shellfish Company. Guy, whose award-winning column graces the magazine each month, shares some of his incredible life experiences with us this week. My name is Guy Grieve, and uh, for years, I've actually got no sense of space or time, but I think for a very long time, I'm privileged enough to be writing a column for the Scottish Field. And sadly, as... I can't live fully by my pen, which is something I'd love to do, because I've discovered that I will never run out of material to write about, essentially, because uh, I've discovered the fantastic ingredient, which is my own myriad and multitudinous failings. So I never run out of material, you know, because I'm always generally starting and failing at some kind of endeavor and I find that writing provides the silver lining to all disasters because I just think well okay that's gone wrong but I've got a chapter out of that one so I I keep myself afloat by running uh, the ethical shellfish company with my beloved former wife uh, Juliet and dear friend yeah so I've been doing that for 12 years and I've only just finished my scallop diving career thanks to covid which kind of nailed that but for 12 years i've been working at sea and in between that time attempting to keep writing and the scottish field column for me has been a real diamond that i've really really enjoyed doing it when did your love of the sea begin i think my love of the sea is really about wilderness it's our It's our great wilderness, you know, that that surrounds this archipelago of islands we call the British Isles. You know, it's surrounded by this great expanse of something that is just the the, the purest wilderness. I suppose my my love of the sea is tied in with just my love of wild places. What I adore about the sea is, and why I love working out at sea, is the sense that you're out on an expanse of something that no one owns. I really like that experience. You're in a zone to, like any wilderness, where arrogance, you know, real advanced machismo and all that nonsense gets you into trouble. It's, I, I like working with people at sea because everyone's very aware of their place and is careful and humble and it's also a zone where a good sense of humor is extremely important because you're so often being put in your place that you, you know, you just have to laugh. But I suppose my, my big, big love of the sea began 
a while ago when we bought a, a secondhand sailing boat 50 miles off the coast of Venezuela and lived at sea when my sons were four and seven and uh, brought this boat back to, to Mull. And that was a glorious time when you could raise money so easily, you know, pre-2008. You know, we, we just uh, extended our mortgage under the premise of home improvements uh, and, and drastically improved our house and went and lived at sea. And I, I wrote a column for the, the Sunday Telegraph, a weekly column, and I wrote a book about it. And it was an unbelievable privilege to live at sea for that, that year. And I hung around boats and stuff. And my uncle was a, a tuna fisherman. In fact, I'll show you something. Stand by. This is my uncle. My mother's family were Southern Italians. Well, they are Southern Italians. And he was a, a tuna fisherman in the Cape of Good Hope. And he was my absolute hero. My uncle Bruno, he had a 60-foot tuna boat called La Bonita. And uh, he used to, he, he got me very interested in the sea from a very young age, seven onwards. When did you start diving? I started diving when I was 17. And when we came, when we finally got back to Moa after spending this year at sea in 2008, we were completely broke. Because sadly, these great schemes and adventures can, if you haven't got a trust fund, cause a little bit of local difficulty. So we arrived totally broke on Mole, but at the same time, richer than the Astors. You know, the, the memories and achievements and things that we've done as a family were so profound that we, we felt rich beyond all reason. However, we, we didn't have a, a beam. So we managed to sell the boat. And then we were stuck on Mole thinking, how on earth are we going to earn a living? And Juliet mentioned that her uncle, or an uncle in the family, had been a scallop diver. So I thought, well, let's give that a shot. And uh, the same rules applied, you know, when I first hit that. So, I, I yeah, I went and did a, a few more diving qualifications to keep the government happy and then uh, started scallop diving from the smallest registered fishing boat in Scotland at that time. It was a six-metre inflatable rib. You'd sit out in this open boat in, you know, January, February, March in the North Atlantic in between dives in snow and wind and hail and whatever. And, but I found it was just like the Alaskan wilderness. It was just like when I brought the boat across the North Atlantic. It's just like when I've lived in jungle. The same rules always apply with wilderness, you know, which is you're not the center of the world. Don't think in any way that you have any influence on this great, magnificent wilderness. I was used to being ignored in places where you could just be swept away. So all the, the same philosophies apply of, of any kind of wilderness life to, to the job of scallop diving. You know, when you hit the seabed on your own and you look around you, you realize that if I'm not careful, I'm, I'm not going to come back. I'm dead. So it's it's just all the it's all the same you know on the Yukon River or in the jungle or in the mid-Atlantic or on the seabed just off the coast of Mole it's the same so I enjoyed being back in in, in a wilderness zone yeah. so uh, you made a success of it and were able to start the company for yourself yeah we got a five thousand pound loan from um, the uh, the Noble Trust which is a fantastic trust started out and 
from the Lark Fine oyster fishery operation. Yeah, it was it was just such an old-fashioned business. You know, they were difficult and dangerous to get scallops, but once you got them, everyone wanted them. So clean. But of course, reaching market from mole was really difficult. My routine was I would dive Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday, I would haul our scallops out of the tidal narrows in between Olver and Mull, which is a small island off Mull. I would then pack all the scallops, take the seven o'clock ferry that night on Sunday night, deliver my first lot in Birmingham fish market at four in the morning, then deliver to all the restaurants in London before 12 midday on the Monday, and then sleep in the service stations on the way back on the Monday, and then I'd be back at sea in the open boat Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I did that for the first four years. So Juliet used to remember she would phone to say goodnight at 11 p.m. and I was driving. And then she'd wake up and phone to say good morning on Monday morning and I was still driving. So it was hard. It was, you know, 36-hour stints to make it work. But in the end, it grew upon itself. And we got to the point pre-COVID of sending out 10,000 dive scallops a week to, to the UK market. That's a hell of a lot of you know, stress, particularly when you've got kids doing those hours. Yeah, it's survival, you know, it's survival. And I used to think, because I didn't have a boat at that time to get to my our boat, we couldn't afford one. So I used to swim to the rib to start the day's work and bring it back and then meet my crew. And, you know, I had put on a dry suit, obviously, and swam out. But it was redneck yoga. I mean, it kept you very fit, at least. Uh, but I remember once swimming out to the boat and thinking to myself, God, what a day. You know, it was hailing, it was dark. It was November, and I knew that the diving that day was going to be so dark that I wouldn't see the seabed until I hit it, you know. But I remember thinking to myself, ah, well, when we were bringing that boat back from South America, I used to see fishermen swimming out to their boats. You know, what makes me so special? Uh, Why should I think I deserve anything better than anyone else? So I just felt lucky that my body was strong enough to do it, you know, to keep on going. But... You know, I used to, my only motivation was for my, my sons and family, you know, so I would come back and the boys, the little golden blonde hair, they would always wait, you know, just because they knew I would get home and then would get the fire lit. And then the routine was I would go straight to the bar and then one of the boys would bring me either a, a whiskey or a cup of tea, you know, it was good. It was a good, clean way of life. But gradually as money gets involved and you start a the business starts to take over you find yourself in a different a different kind of realm before we discuss the scottish field column you've been very vocal recently in terms of the the welfare of the seabed can you tell us a bit about what's been happening and, and why it's so critical that people should be more aware of what's going on at the moment I've always sought harmony in everything I've ever done with my fellow man. I believe everyone has struggles and hardships and you can't come to quick conclusions about people. And I've always, in any wilderness I've ever been, I've always got on well with people. And that's been the difference for me in whether I've survived or not, because friendship has always kept me alive. But the difficult thing about the scallop diving was I became an unwilling witness 
to the destruction of our seabeds inshore. Unwilling because these were my neighbors. These were people who ran boats and are good, honest, hardworking people, a lot of them. However, because the Scottish government attaches very little true importance to the protection of our marine, our shallow inshore, scallop dredging is allowed to continue, you know, inshore. So, you know, I saw, I saw the effects of the New Haven scallop dredge, which if you ran a competition to design something to destroy the seabeds, you couldn't do anything better than design the scallop dredge. And what happens is these heavy dredges, which are uh, often sometimes eight aside, or, you know, you'll have eight of these on the side of a boat sometimes. They're dropped onto the seabed and they have, in front of every net, they have spikes, which are called dredge swords, about that long. And these are towed over the seabeds, sometimes up to five meters in depth. They're towed through kelp forests. They're towed over sea mounts. They're towed around reefs. Here's the difficult bit. So anyway, we, we saw the destruction that's going on with scallop dredging. And plenty of Creole fishermen, old school Creole creelers have spoken about it too. But they couldn't speak out because if a Creole fisherman speaks out about dredging, his creels will be dredged at night. And so his whole living will be towed away. So they have to keep quiet. Whereas the divers could speak about it as we are the fishing equipment. So, you know, our livelihood is not out there in the middle of the night. But it was very disheartening to see it. And we got very involved. I got very involved in environmentalism in trying to bear witness to the scallop dredging, trying to get the Scottish government to do something about it. And instead, the Scottish government approached it as a problem that they needed to keep us quiet. They didn't want people talking about the destruction of the seabeds. So they set up a brilliant campaign to tie everyone into knots to make it impossible for us to really achieve anything. They hosted all sorts of meetings. They set up inshore fishermen's groups where they were able to say to the newspapers, well, we're letting the fishermen sort this out themselves. But anyone with any understanding of sociology would understand that in a local area, a whole bunch of fishermen get together to discuss the issues. The loudest voices will win. And they also ensured that in the IFG that all votes that took place had to be public. There was no secret ballot within them. Now, anyone with any understanding of human, the human condition will know that no one's going to publicly vote for his neighbor to lose a living. Richard Lockhead came in and did a very good job. He did acknowledge what was going on. He played a part in setting up the marine uh, protected areas of which there were 30 in the end formed around Scotland. But he was soon replaced by Fergus Ewing, who was uh, a disaster. And uh, as a result, the efforts that were made to try to get a three mile limit brought into operation again to protect our inshores and to deal with the dredging, all of those efforts have failed. And our marine protected areas are dredged anyway, illegally. So nothing's been done. It's quite disheartening. And I have to laugh about it or else God knows what I'd do. Interestingly, we see the Scottish government is very, very active in what they're doing in clamping down on various estates in Scotland and how, you know, the whole situation around 
management of moorlands and this, that, and the other. And they're, they're, they're being quite active there. And it's because people can see what's going on, whereas they've taken advantage of the fact that no one knows what's going on underneath that level of blue and, and, and just ignored it. Yeah, well, thank you for highlighting that for us. I think it's it's one that I've been following through your columns and reading about it, and I think it's one that you know people should be aware of. So thank you for doing that. Talking of highlighting it in Scottish fields, how did you first come to be involved with doing a column for the magazine? Well, I was asked by Richard Bath whether I'd consider writing a, a rural column for it, and uh, I jumped at it. I jumped at it because I believe that Richard Bath, uh, and this is not me attempting to get some sort of pay rise for my column here, but because uh, I'll never get it, there's no point. I think he has renovated the Scottish field. He's really turned that magazine around because I remember it before he'd edited it and it had become very staid. It was actually quite an uninteresting read. He's really revived it and created a a hugely readable magazine. So I felt really honoured to be given a chance to contribute to that in some small manner. And I don't know when that was. Was it four years ago? It's quite interesting just to be able to capture, you know, for, for people like myself, can actually get a feel for what you're saying in the column and, and it, just to be able to share these experiences that perhaps we wouldn't think of. Yeah. What I adore about writing a column is it's an expanded thought. That's what I love. You know, I'm limited to 600 words or so. And it's just one thought to a large extent, which you expand to give a beginning, a middle and an end. So I really, really enjoy, because I'm plagued by thoughts. I'm constantly dreaming or thinking of something ridiculous or stupid or, you know. And the column for me just gives me a moment to just find one little thought out of that morass and to distill it and to give it some point and, and, and some purpose. I just adore writing that column. You did quite well a few years ago when you won a wee award for it as well as the magazine columnist of the year. Well, that was a great honour. And I would just, I would just, I'd love to, uh, to meet the, I love meeting people who, who do read it and who, who have enjoyed it. And I was heartened to say that some research recently said that people spend about 38 seconds on my column, which I thought was, uh, I, I, actually, I think Richard Barth told me that research had shown that the average time spent on my column is 38 seconds. And I, I said to him, that's horrendous, that's nothing. And he said, well, now just hold on. And he took out a book and he held it open and he went, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. So actually, yeah, 38 seconds is quite long. (laughs) Guy, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us in the Scottish Show podcast. It's been a real pleasure and a real insight. Great, Kenny. Thank you. Hope to meet you again. Our thanks to Guy for his time. And in next week's episode, you can hear more from Guy talking about what he's writing about in this month's edition. As I mentioned earlier, we have two special subscription offers. You can subscribe for £10.69 per quarter, saving 25% on the cover price of the physical magazine. Or, for just £50, you can get a three-year digital subscription and a free bottle of Aaron Malt while stocks last. As long as you're over the age of 18, of course. 
If you enter the code MACLEAN, that's M-A-C-L-E-A-N, when you visit the site, £10 will be donated to the Dewart Castle Roof Restoration Appeal for each subscription purchase. To find out more and how to subscribe, visit www.scottishfield.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. So now, joining us is our second guest, acclaimed Scots writer Alistair Moffat, who, having written numerous factual having written numerous fascinating factual books, is now turning his hand to writing fiction, with a story set in an alternative Scotland. My name's Alistair Moffat and uh, I'm a, a, a scribbler, a miserable scribbling drudge, um, <laughs> who, who writes mostly non-fiction, but uh, have recently got into the realms of making stuff up and I've, I've written my first novel. So when was it you began writing? Is it something you've always been interested in? Before Morning is the title of the novel, and it must have been quite fascinating, you know, effectively, like almost like a jigsaw, 
where you've got various pieces where you've got your locations and such like that you've been to and it's a case of how do you try and bring them all together and link them up? Yes, I mean, that's right. And I mean, it's essentially set in, in what became Nazi Scotland, you know, German-occupied Scotland. And I, I did it as a pure piece of escape. I mean, I think like, we all needed escape and we still do, you know, from that horrific pandemic. And, and so, yeah, I just began to, to put it together. I, I, when I was a kid, I loved the Sesame Seals at the Roxy Cinema in Kelso, and they always left you with a clue. 
Yeah. But it was a great, great experience. I've read The Man in the High Castle many, many yeah. times ago. And I suppose this is effectively giving us a Scottish version, but perhaps without the science fiction element to it. Yes, that's right. When FSGD landed, you know, sets in 1940, and CJ Sansom and Dominion does the same. So I'm playing in the same park as them, but what I do is I set it in 1944, after the Normandy landings. And so you think that the Allies are going to win the war, and they don't. And so that, that's, that's, that's what's different about it, and what I think has hooked, um, has hooked readers. So, you know, it, it's very much a, you know, based uh, at the beginning in historical reality, and then, of course, it's uh, my Sally Magnuson's tree, you know, <laughs> and then take flight rather than climb back down the tree. It's very much a, you know, a counterfactual, but there's a lot of facts in it, there's a lot of factual stuff in it. I suppose that's something that you've done a lot over the years with your factual books. Do you have any particular favourites? Because you've written about so many things, but Journey to Lindisfarne, Scotland's Forgotten Roads, the book about King Arthur, Hoyk, the Great Tapestry of Scotland. There's so many things that you've done so far. Well, that's right. That's been great and such a lot of fun. The last three books I did were all journeys, you know, and walking mostly. And that was good because you know, it's it's what the great Highland historian Jim Hunter called the archive of the feet. You know, you're, you're there, you're walking through it, which is great. But the thing I liked best of, of my backlist was was a, a complete publishing failure. <laughs> nobody wanted to read. Nobody wanted to read it. It was 2004. I published a, a memoir called Homing, which was about growing up in the 1950s and early 60s and mid 60s, and I tried to recreate that world. I talked about the Roxy Cinema, uh, Palace of Dreams. Um, it came out in, like, in 2004, and I thought, this is going to you know, sell millions of copies. It's absolutely great. Nobody wanted to read it. <laughs> it was a complete failure. It's been out of print for years. But I'm so fond of it, and I, I, I liked it. So it's, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bitter taste, that one. I mean, a friend of mine said, well, you, you sold your soul in print and nobody wanted to buy it. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> a good friend said that, I forget. But, uh, but yeah, but that, that was, that was the, the most fun. But, but the, the walking books like The Hidden Ways and, and The Island of Tides, I, I, I've, I've enjoyed that because, you know, I get away on my own on my backpack and my, my mobile phone. What a joyful instrument that is because not because of... research for the historical books like Bannockburn that must have been quite you know to find a to find something new to say about something that's been covered many many times
said my favourite is I've ever since I was at school, I've been interested in the Romans. So the wall, Rome's great frontier, all about Hadrian's Wall. That's the one that had me gripped. I absolutely loved it. Oh great! Oh thank you. I'm glad. I mean, it was it was funny because I made a TV series with, with um, Tony Gray Thompson, you know, the Parliament Catholic. Yes. I could talk to you all day, but I'm afraid we're running out of time for the podcast today. So, where can people find the night before morning? Alistair, thank you so much for joining us on the Scottish Field Podcast this week. Great pleasure. Thanks for asking me. All the best. And thanks to Alistair for joining us once again. You can follow Scottish Field on our social media. You can find us on Twitter at www.twitter.com forward slash Scottish Field. We have a Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Scottish Field. So please feel free to pop by and like us. Or... You can see our Instagram page at www.instagram.com forward slash Scottish Field Mag. That's M-A-G at the end. And of course, you can pop by our website www.scottishfield.co.uk which contains unique content that you won't find in the print magazine as well as links to purchase the magazine online in physical and digital formats. That's all we've got time for this week, but we'll be back with another edition of the podcast next Wednesday. We look forward to you hearing us then. So until next week, this has been the Scottish Field Podcast. Bye bye.